all those into retreat is coming to an end. And then hopefully you've uh, used more wisdom during the past two months so that you're not just unaware and attached to ideas of retreat or not non-retreats or work or whatever. <coughs> the, the word work sometimes brings up an adverse feeling that you've got to work now and suddenly people, some people think work, oh good, you know, I really want to work. Other people, that's a very unpleasant word, always associated <coughs> with having to do something you don't want. Or because we would like to do what we want. How many of you would just like to be able to do what you want to do, what you feel like doing? And you don't want to have to do something that you don't want to do, or you don't feel like doing. Well, you can reflect on that, of just <coughs> a feeling dutiful, like, well, I have to do it. Ajahn Sumedho expects me Ajahn Amando insists that I (laughs) 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 we can feel very dutiful like we're being pressured Venerable Sujito insists and makes me do these things and uh, one can really feel it's this kind of uh, it's not that anyone has any intention of forcing or compelling but these are all the vipaka karma of our lives of being pressured, feeling pressured and identifying with uh, never really recognizing or understanding the, the movements of our movement in our mind We can create a whole world, a false, illusory world that doesn't exist except in your mind. You could say, Venerable Nando is this way and he wants things done like this and he is very blah, 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 blah. And then if you go and confront him and say, you're like this and you're like that, he looks, me? <laughs> <laughs> That's why sometimes you know, I, I'm even shocked at some of the projections you have onto me. You have all kinds of ideas about me, and, and then, you, then when I hear them, sometimes they're actually quite painful because they're so untrue and unreal. You got a, you know, a, some kind of really kind of hard, unfeeling, driving person or something or other, and if you, if you had to live with me, like I do, <laughs> you realize what a soft heart. <laughs> Sometimes I can look mean, but that's... <laughs> Sometimes I deliberately look mean. Because I like to look mean sometimes. 
I remember one uh, at Warpapo one time, I got really, I just got fed up with, with Ajahn Chah and that whole scene. I just, just hated it. Everything. This place is just filled with Ajahn Chah. Everything is Ajahn Chah. Everything. Everywhere you go, you just feel. Nung Kha Chah, Nung Kha Chah. Everything around you. Even in the toilet. He's everywhere. <laughs> And then the way those dumb monks and those lay people were talking about Lung Kha came in, Lung Kha wants us to do that. And we have disciples of Lung Kha, and we are what are called monks, and no, 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 no. They just felt so angry and, and negative about the whole thing. And so I thought, I can't stay here, I just got to leave. This is, this is just a obsessed cult, that's all it is. I'm not, I'm, I'm not that stupid, I'm going to get out of here, quick. And so in this, this was really a kind of ugliness of heart, wasn't it? In my, it was, when I really contemplated, it was, it was a really kind of nastiness in my mind that was taking over. Because, uh, admittedly, Lung Kho Cha was a very strong, had a strong character and was uh, certainly when you were there when when uh, at Watapo and and he was there you certainly knew he was there <laughs> but it was uh, always this uh, this uh, projection because Lung Kwachong was a very benevolent kindly being and yet something in me just wanted to just, just react in a negative way because I was being threatened as a person me me, I was being I was afraid of having to conform or give up or submit or restrain all these things that, that the desires you don't feel like doing a lot of the time I don't feel like, I don't want to I don't want to have to do that I don't feel like it. I'm free. I'm an, I'm an independent individual. I can. I have the American Bill of Rights. I can. <laughs> I can do what I want, and I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to <laughs> conform or submit or surrender or give up to anything. Because I don't feel like it today. Sometimes I feel like it. Sometimes I want to do that, and I feel like. Sometimes I don't feel like. <clears throat> so this this uh, feeling is is very kind of silly, isn't it? Really? When we identify with it, because if you if you really notice what you like, what you feel like when you wake up in the morning, what do you really feel like when you when you have to get up in the morning? Generally, you don't feel like getting, at least I don't, I don't feel like I want to get up in the morning. I mean, I feel like just staying under my electric blanket on a cold morning. That's what I feel like. And 
And I don't feel like having to, to get up at three o'clock in the morning and, and go rowing. <laughs> I never feel like that. <laughs> Ever since I've taken up rowing, I've never felt like doing it. <laughs> And, uh, but one just does these things, isn't it? One doesn't. If you just if you just follow feelings, then you're you're just a wishy-washy kind of nerd. <laughs> because feelings are totally untrustworthy. They can be noted and recognized, but not to be identified. Feeling that is to be seen, and it, it's, it's certainly an important part of our life to be able to feel. And it's the sensitivity is seen as dhamma, and, and it's uh, something to to understand, but not to attach to, because it, if you identify with your feelings, then you're, you're just all over the place. Because feelings can change, don't they? They change very quickly. They're not rational, like if you're attached to I- rational ideas and being sensible and reasonable about everything, uh, and then you can kind of go on just that kind of energy of being uh, a person who is responsible and rational, reasonable about life. But if, uh, and that, that uh, of course, is uh, very helpful, it makes us at least very we're not just up and down, totally untrustworthy, uh, irresponsible beings, because we do have ideas of what we should do and, and what's right, and what's reasonable and sensible. But if we're just attached to our feelings, then we then I, we don't feel like doing it. We don't want to do that, and that can change. Sometimes we, you know, we feel very good and we want to do everything. And other times we feel depressed, or just feel weak, and feel worthless, or feel we're being put on, or feel that we're not being understood, or feel that too too much is expected of us. Or really contemplate feeling what it is to, to... I'm not asking you to suppress feeling, but to really objectify it, look at it as something to observe and know as a Nietzsche Dukkarmata, rather than to give it a great importance as a, as a personal position to operate from. <coughs> Going to meetings, having a committee meeting. I never feel like going to meetings. English language trust. I never feel like I want to go to more the Terracotta meeting. I don't feel like going to those things. 
committee meetings. Mm -hmm. So if I just followed my feelings, I would never go. Whenever I hear that there's a meeting, I don't ever feel like going to it. But that's taken into account. Is it is is the feeling? Is it because I'm really sick and I'm and you know I've got the bad cold or pneumonia or or uh, shingles or AIDS or something? <laughs> and I just can't. I'm so weak. I can't possibly <coughs> drag myself over to the meeting. Or is it just a mood? Do I just you know because. Well, committee meetings can get very boring and they talk about things that, you know, you really could care less about most of the time and and, uh, and they're just kind of perfunctory necessities of administration. And so they realize that this is just, they're all right. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't identify with your feelings about them, they're all right. Sometimes they're very pleasant, like yesterday's in the Sangha Trust meeting, it was very, uh, a bit boring at times, but it's all right. Don't expect in the Sangha Trust meetings to be that their duty is to entertain me. Frida Wink came, always enjoy seeing Frida Wink. I'm very glad now I went to the English Sunday Trust meeting and didn't just follow my feeling and not wanting to be bothered. Okay, so, if this being a monk and uh, with a vinya and uh, the, the kind of Tradition, and all that sometimes you know one doesn't feel like like keeping all the rules or being meticulous, and and uh, sometimes thoughts come in like, well, I've been doing this long enough; you don't have to be so, so you know, it's for the new month, really, <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes you just don't feel like. It. But then, if you're mindful and you just you you're, you're aware of that that whole trap of mood, that me and mine in regards to a mood, and uh, and the way you know, you can really lie to yourself and just uh, justify all kinds of of uh, following your feelings, following your mood. <coughs> this is where the reflection on life life is like this and you, and you like Amravati is like this it's, it's the way it is living here being a 
Bhikkhu, Venus, Dilagra, Vena Nagarika, Vena Nagarika, Vena lay person here, like this. It's not saying, not, we're, not, we're not judging it, we're just noticing it's like this. It's the big place, isn't it? It's, uh, it, it, it's, not exact, it's not like Chitter or Devon, but it's like this. To say, is it better or worse than Chitter or Devon or all? Is it, do you like it better? Do you feel, what do you feel like here? Do you feel happier or unhappier or... Do you feel like being here, or do you feel like being something somewhere else? Or these are, these are it's just to be noticing how what you're feeling like is enough without being attached to the feeling. So then you're, you're the mind. You see, the, the mind has a, a kind of embracing ability. You don't have to have everything one way. One has one adapts. Through mindfulness, one can, can recognize that it's like this, and therefore you you can you you adapt and work with things the way they are, rather than thinking, well, in order for me to feel good here, it has to be exactly like what they do with Chithurst. So, or if you go to Chithurst and you say, uh, you go to Ajahn and and you say. Well, I'm about the other tomato lettuce to do this, other tomato lettuce to do that. If other tomato says it's okay, then it's okay, isn't it? Anyone, who do you think you are? Then, then that's a, because you don't feel like you've gotten used to what other tomato does at Amravati, and if other Nando doesn't do it exactly that way, it's his hurt, then you feel. Other Nando's wrong, he should be doing it exactly like other tomato. And, and that's that's what kind of you know when you really listen to that pettiness of mind. If you really like, you go to chitters and you 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 chitters is like this. Don't have to say it's better, worse, or the same or whatever. It's just the way it is. So you're aware of how to work and adapt within that particular situation. That takes wisdom, mindfulness, wisdom, rather than just you know, you trying to get your way or impose your will on the situation. <coughs> each place, each uh, abbot in the land has their own character, and their own quality. We feel them, they're all different. And you're living with Ajahn Kitty Sorrow different feeling and if you're living with Ajahnananda like this one feels differently maybe or is more one more attracted or more suspicious or whatever but that's to be noted not to be in the, in the way of reflection then you can you can use life as a as something to, to watch and notice rather than to just follow your feelings and your moods.
with the with the nuns, the sila and you really say with with women or with junior sila dharana, you are always comparing them with the say senior monks or with ideals of what you think Buddhist nuns should be like, and, and uh, all that. Then you're then you're always going to, you're not going to, to really see the way it is, you're always going to feel that it should be, they should be something else. And that's not what we're here for, to go around. We're not trying to find perfect bhikkhus and perfect sila draws and all that that we can respect and then, then become their devoted disciples and they will always be just exactly what we want and we'll love them forever and we will never be disappointed by them because they're perfect. <coughs> that's, that's a very childish attitude, isn't it? Because being human is like this. Yeah. No matter how much you try to be perfect, you can't be a, a, a marble Buddha Rupa. Just the, the flawed, sensitive nature of humanity means that that we're not going to be able to live up to everyone's expectations all the time. So, this is, this being human, what is it like to be human? To have this, this sensitivity and these, these weaknesses and flaws in, in just our humanity. We're all that way, we're all flawed. Ajahn Chah was flawed. Dalai Lama, all of us, you know, no kind of there's not one living, breathing, marble Buddhist monk. We all have character tendencies and weaknesses and, and uh, flaws here and there and scars and all that kind of thing. It's just part of our humanity. So that when we reflect, we, this is the way it is. Being human is like this not being a marble Buddha Rupa, but it's, it's been like this. It's all, it's, 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 there's a feeling of it. Marble Buddha Rupa doesn't feel. But even the, the, the cats feel, and the, the birds feel. And then human beings, our feelings are, we, we identify with them. We're not just we're not just uh, uh, instinctual beings anymore. We, we have uh, in this wisdom and intelligence to operate with. So we can reflect on feeling what it is to be sensitive and feel things. How to reflect. So if you're trying to be perfect, then you can suppress your feelings. If you just if you don't feel like getting up in the morning, you wake up and then you don't feel like getting up. Shut up, get up, it's time to get up, don't be a lazy bum. <laughs> so then there's the, the kind of total intensity to the feeling. Yeah. Just a kind of tyr tyrannical slave driver. I think we, we've all suffered from that, the inner tyrant. It always has having a go, telling you you're never good enough, and you're too lazy, and you're 
and that, so that there's that, and one can just be insensitive because the inner tyrant can, can just be slave drivers. I have inner, uh, my inner tyrant is never, there's nothing I can ever do right, actually. I've never done anything right in my life to that inner tyrant. Even if I give a smashing talk and everybody says, and everybody in the room says, that was the most inspiring, wonderful Dhammadesa I've ever heard. You are the finest monk in the world. You are the great teacher of the age. And everybody would join us. The inner tyrant would be saying, you shouldn't have said this, and you get attacked for this praise. So you, I realize that even if, if, if everybody in the world, absolutely everybody in the world, praised me and said I was the best, the inner tyrant would never let me get away. He'd always pick up on something. And maybe that everybody in the world never noticed. <laughs> so inner tyrants are, are, are like they're just slave drivers. And there's no way you can ever, ever uh, please them because they're just that, that kind of and just is totally is never is not capable of being pleased. It will always pick out the flaw or the thing wrong and and say, This is what you are. This this terrible thing here is what you really are. But you can notice that. So you, so that one isn't one isn't just following moods and giving in to how you're feeling. Uh, or you're not just suppressing and just becoming a driven, obsessed, uh, <coughs> being driven in, uh, uh, by this ty- inner tyrant. And this is the, what Buddha really means, isn't it? The knowing, the awakened one, the, 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 the w- wisdom, the seeing clearly, the knowing of things as they are. So that inner tyrants, you can befriend. You can listen to them because sometimes what they say is is uh, can be listened to, but it's not to be identified with or to be recognized for what it is. We need to have some kind of inner critical faculties operating. That's very helpful, but it need, needs to be seen as for what it is as dharma rather than as self. We need to recognize that if we wake up in the morning and we don't feel like getting up, maybe there is, maybe it's because we're really sick. Maybe it's not just because you're a lazy, horrible person and, and a bum and just want to take the easy way out. Maybe it's because you really <coughs> Uh, or it's, a, it's a, maybe it's something to, to be considered as to be recognized and reflected on so you can you're not just kind of just condemning it right off the inner tyrant just just say denying that and, and, and hating it 
or just believing it totally. But it's it's our ability to, to observe, reflect on the way things are, that we can see what is appropriate, what is suitable for the time and place. If some of you are have you know very willing to, to do everything and, and sacrifice everything, uh, sometimes to the detriment of your own health, so that you you don't pay attention to how your body is, and so it, it you just run it down, you kind of just completely uh, get so bad that you have that you can't even get up in the morning, even though the inner tyrant says you lazy bum. You can't, even with, with all the inner tyrant beating you, you can't get up in the morning. Because you've got a high fever and you're totally whacked. <coughs> or some of you believe every little thing. I don't feel like getting up in the morning. And I should try to look after myself. So you just indulge all the time and in looking after yourself. Everything is is real for it. Every every little unpleasant feeling is is a big thing. It's terribly important. Every little movement, every little slight headache, every slight feeling of of fatigue or something is is a terribly important issue in love. Those are the extremes, the pointing to extremes. So that we, we reflect on that and that we learn from it. How to balance, how to, to work with life, to work with the, our constitution. Work with our emotional nature. Young, or you're old, or you're male or female, all these influences, whether you're got a robust, vigorous constitution or a delicate one, or whatever, these are to be considered, not to be judged, or to be identified, attached to, but recognized.
Sangha Well, you can't even do it. 
I found what the technique did was that it, it, it gave you a depth of insight which inspired you to carry, to carry, you know, it had a need that you shouldn't, you shouldn't attach the insights which you can get to, the deeper insights that you get to that technique. You shouldn't attach to them, which is difficult because they are inspiring enough that you do get attached. I know that's a, a pitfall, but um, along with that, there's always, always the encouragement <coughs> to let go of that, but it gives you the inspiration to carry on with practice in my life rather than go on a retreat. And then, if it was a fairly laid back retreat, you went into lay life, and then you just you just took nothing into lay life. You understand what I mean? <laughs> I felt that it's more open. I mean, I know, I and I know a lot of people who have been very firm with their community. It has been quite open for monks, but for people who have been there in the past, is it, it has yeah. been anything quite possible. For people who live there as monks and nuns, and quite a few Westerners have gone there, but nothing is really important. I mean, I'm sort of into that, so basically, as a, mm. a sort of, as a, you know, something you don't know, I mean, I don't know what I mean, but uh, just a defensive lay person, I think. <laughs> 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 because I think it's misunderstood a lot of the time. The question is, I actually met a, a nurse in Mountain Thailand who ordained at the Mahasi Center. And literally, and just as you said, just he had no instruction in linear community life at all. It was just put the robes on and then it's up to you. Just carry on with the technique. After a year, he was totally confused. Because he had no idea how to live as a monk. It was just like exactly the same as being on retreat as a lay person. He was supposed to be living as a victim, so he had no sense of community or, or affiliation with the monastic world of the It was very confusing for him. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be that was uh, yeah. not, not an uncommon reaction to it. George Shant is a good example problem of a successful Yeah, but for me, 
personally learning that technique, I found a great disparity because on the one hand, the technique was you know, cut and dry for what you could do, but then it didn't really encourage me to develop any of the community aspects of the life in the monastery. So it was into jar with the, the normal running of the monastery with there were a hundred people living there, or twenty monks, thirty or forty nuns, and lots of uh, bosses and like people. It was very difficult to integrate with that, though they were there and looking to the other and his example as the presence of a being who practiced the Dhamma was only when there was a, a formal retreat regime that he encouraged that techniques to be affected. What he exemplified himself was, was not a sense of that you do that technique. But I find it very difficult personally to, because of the craving the, the teaching that technique brings on. The fascination for it. Very difficult to that balance in the to integrate that into the community. Ideally, you think you can do it, but in practice, I didn't think that the one, two, or three lots of months I never found working for that. So there was always a sense with the Ajahn that when he had to be inspired by, by me. So when he was doing the Ajahn, he was doing the Ajahn. I think my, my experience, because I did that, I started with that in Patma Park, and then uh, in uh, Bangkok, because Sanjo Kun Tate Muni was teaching that, and then, uh, then I did a year as a Samanera, a long time, I, and, I, and that's all I knew was that technique. So I did that the first few months, and then I, I just found it uh, something in me just felt it was uh, in the way the technique itself. But I didn't have any teacher. I just I just really studied the uh, word of the Buddha and um, and reflected on the teachings, and then. Uh, when I went to Wat Phong, Ajahn Chah, 
he didn't want me to walk slowly or anything. He would, he would really, you know, because I was doing that slow walk, and he, he didn't want me to do that. He made a point of not doing that. And, uh, and I kept, you know, I used to wonder why, because, I mean, when you're doing those concentrated techniques, it, it, uh, it feels like, you know, that, that's a very good thing to be doing. But then I, you know, I could see that Lung Po Chow was really aiming at a, at, a, at a grander thing than just the technique. And uh, a way of living, a whole life, reflective life. <coughs> and uh, I felt, you know, because when you had to, uh, uh, you know, one, one liked to go to one's kuti and and sit and walk and not have to uh, kind of join in on a, on a sangha of things like working projects. <coughs> you know, one really, you, you get like people because they think that they're living in a monastery they're just going to be able to have a three month walking sitting retreat for a lifetime you know so they some of them get very enthusiastic and they find out what what really happened they don't want to do it because they just want this very kind of peaceful controlled situation and uh, and the problems that come up in uh, in community life uh, seem to get in the way of their practice rather than be developed and to be reflected on its practice. So that, uh, you know, in, in to compare with uh, St. Ajahn Chah, the only Asian Theravada monk that has produced a Sangha Westerner. Why? Why is that? when actually uh, the Mahasi Sayadaw is more famous and for a longer period of time you know, he's famous and they do his technique in Australia and they do it in, in uh, they have Mahasi Sayadaw uh, trusts in America and they have, you know, it's all and, and Joseph Goldstein is, and Sharon, they, they are devoted to that but yet you ask them if they're ever going to become monk or not, they say no. In fact, they come here and ask me, ask us to go over and, and be monks and nuns for them over there. <laughs> why don't they do it? <laughs> why? And yet they obviously receive very good results from doing that technique. It's not to deny that, to deny that the good results or the good effect for the insight. But 
the Buddha didn't teach that technique actually. If you, if you, if you, uh, you know, he didn't teach technique. He taught dhamma, and uh, this is uh, this is the important thing: the dhamma to see the dhamma rather than than uh, because technique can, is so dependent upon conditions. You can't do a technique. You have to have special setup for technique, don't you? Within in reflection on Dhamma, you, you, you can do that everywhere, anywhere. And where technique becomes, you see, then, then you hear all kinds of things like the 16 stages before your soda partner. And uh, that becomes ludicrous, uh, because the mind uh, uh, is always looking for something to attach to. I mean, you meet people who are always trying to go on to the next stage, and uh, and then people who who say they're so dependent or so forth. And and to me, that 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 is. Um, you know, just reinforcing the, the view of itself as of an attainment of achievement. Well, like any kind of trick, like just just locking yourself in a in a in a prison cell, and uh, sensory deprivation will give you tremendous kind of experiences. You know, just just uh, living in a sensory deprivation situation. Well, well, you you know, you're, there's a kind of dross and ten- tendency toward uh, say this habitual behavior falls away. And then you you get in touch with uh, with a uh, with a blissful state of mind, real peacefulness. So that, that any kind of concentrated, very controlled, tight situation that, uh, you know, after a while, if you, or sensory deprivation, one will experience very beautiful state, just the way it is. But then at Dhamma, you see, if you're, if you're dependent upon sensory deprivation, technique, and uh, all that, then you're, then, then that's a more of a hermetic practice, where you, 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 you can uh, live in a much more refined state of consciousness because of the, the lack of, say, where community life uh, doesn't allow such refinement because you have to, you have to be impinged on by people. And, Situations that are not not going to induce uh, sensory, or not going to help sensory deprivation, the sensory stimulation. But as dhamma, then you can then you can uh, you can you uh, you you can practice as dhamma this this kind of life. If you want 
no sensory deprivation, then, then this kind of life isn't, you know, only in moments or special situations that become available to you, do we have those opportunities? Because life isn't sensory deprivation, life is sensory stimulation. That having a body and having a, a feelings and being a human being is is the experience of stimuli being stimulated for a lifetime. And so your stimulation is like this: you're being you're being agitated, irritated, stimulated by the sense world that's being born. So you're seeing the dhamma of it, rather than trying to just get away from stimulation. Uh, and in order to, say, have a sense, to have sensory deprivation. So the, the monastic life is, uh, is restraint, but it's not sensory deprivation, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's sensory restraint, but it's not deprivation. Because asceticism is, goes toward the deprivation. And, and, uh, and so asceticism does, and it's as bad as that asceticism sounds, it's also extremely blissful to have a, to, to be, to deprive your senses of the stimulation. After a while you don't want to eat. You get so refined that e- eating is just too coarse for words. Don't you find, I'm here again here, don't you find like, even, I've got, like I, I take that with the technique, don't you find that like you're saying that technique, you're not, you're not cutting off from senses, like when, you, when you're eating you're still enjoying food or not enjoying food, you're still, if you're investigating with mindfulness then you're not, you're not just blissing out, you're still, you, you, you're using it, if you use it in the right way. It's not, it's not just cutting off. Essential. Admitted you're cutting out a lot of sensory but to really develop a balanced way of looking, you know, being able to look. <laughs> Like I found in it, I mean, I still ate and enjoyed my food and that's how I spent during the day. And I've got quite an active, speedy mind, so I mean, I can turn that off.
What I'm trying to say is that, <coughs> that there is a value to such techniques in, in the beginning. Because, but, but the very value is the same thing that makes them limit later on. The fact that they give you a strong atmosphere of refuge. Which you can then liberate yourself as well. What's going on here, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a problem? Preparation for that. Sangha like this is is to me is brilliant. I think Ajahn Chah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's just that when in in times, I mean, it's right. I mean, that's just because press press your buttons. I mean, it often presses my buttons in respect to you know whenever the Mahasi Sadhak is mentioned, now it seems a very negative action towards it. Well, my experience told me that it's got a value. Now whether it produces brilliant monks and all that is quite fine, it's a few different. That is how it started out, as I say, isn't it? I just felt at that moment, I felt the need to... to, 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 to 
like techniques or are, are just things you use according to time and place. Like I think the problem always comes from people, you know, want, people wanting monasticism to be Mahasi Sayadaw technique. And then, uh, and so you get, you know, you can't help but feel, uh, because I like people from, from the, the Vipassana uh, kind of Upandita school, and where they, they want very much monasticism, you know, monasticism to be just a, a development of a technique. So you're trying to explain the limitation of a technique. But in doing that, then they think that you're against the technique, which is not the case. But, uh, yeah, just, just, uh, you know, one, one doesn't, like Ajahn Chah didn't, didn't want me to do that technique. So, so I, I did, you know, and I, I was glad because I didn't really like the technique. <laughs> but, but the, uh, um, but then I, I contemplated, sometimes I did, I did like to do the slow walking and, and uh, I, I mean I really like to, to, to be very much uh, doing my practice, uh, that kind of thing, I was very attached when I went there and, and yet the, all this, the, the monastic life is always drawing me into, uh, into community situations. And Ajahn Chah would, when, then, when I gravitate to these very isolated uh, attempts to isolate myself, he never really let me do that for very long. And something would, would draw me in. Like I'd, I'd make him, I'd make these very strict Aditana resolutions, and then I would, I think, and I'd tell him that I was going to, you know, eat every other day, and that I would you know, really trying to get special concessions to do this very strict practice. And he'd kind of go along with it for a while, and then suddenly he'd, he'd, he'd take me to some kind of almsgiving ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is really an unpleasant... Those unpleasant papas, you know, could really be, you know, really the exact, very loud noisy, uh, they, they love to speak through microphones and blaring sound, sitting up all night and so forth and so then, you know, I'd get very averse and Mung Paul would really watch me and kind of, I could see that he was, you know, uh, he was laughing at me. <laughs> Because of the, you know, wanting, you know, this very, this other thing than what I had. So, and I began to really contemplate what was happening, you know, what, where I am now, the way things are now, rather than, than, than wishing to have these special conditions. But I did, I did benefit from special conditions. Like I, I, I really like that sweeping technique of 
the Vakim I found that very helpful mm-hmm. and uh, I've done I did this uh, a Zen technique on doubt for several years used the, the Diamond Sutra and the, and the Shu Yun uh, Sashin techniques so I mean it's, it's uh, but then eventually, one one doesn't need those anymore. It's just the, just being a monk and living day by day, and then you kind of see through. You know, you get the insights, and you and the techniques uh, are are no longer. You know, they just fall away from you because they're not not. Uh, you just don't need them. You know, they're, they're no longer necessary. But what what Ajahn Chah really appreciated was developing your upayas. And this was like I was I was always very good at this, at, at really seeing where my you know, where I was hung up and then working out a, a means to deal with it. And uh, he would always praise that. Like, like when I talk about doubt, you know, the incredibly doubting nature, and so uh, this this kind of rigid technique of of uh, Mahati Fire now, uh, I get very concentrated in in that in that. But then, um, and, and 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 the the doubting thing would would be suppressed. Uh, through that, through very concentrated states. So then, uh, um, but then when, when you're not in these, when you can't do this technique, you can't concentrate your mind, it, your, my mind would just blast right back into doubt and walking and confusion. So, so then you, you know, you became aware that that uh, you know, as long as you could control a situation and hold yourself in the concentrated state, you didn't have this doubt. But as soon as this, this, these conditions for concentration were there, then then the mind would just would would even be worse than before. Somehow it would just seem to be uh, in, a, in a terrible kind of doubting, confused state of and resentments and things like that. So then uh, I, I figured out that what I really, you know, since I, since just concentrating my mind wasn't really getting, you know, I was developing concentration, but I wasn't getting beyond that nirvana at all. I was just suppressing it. So then I, then, then it became apparent that you could uh, go to the very doubt itself. And then contemplating on the, on the noble truth, like the cessation uh, of the neuroda sancha, just seeing how, you know, really seeing how that the mind, in that doubting state and uncertainty, wavering uh, state, is is what what I most didn't like about life. You know, I didn't. I wanted to. I wanted to be concentrated. I wanted to be positive. I wanted to be sure of everything. And therefore, 
I, because of that, I, if I could have some kind of control, then I could feel more confident. If I could control a situation and, and limit myself, then I, then I had a sense of, of security. But when things were out of control and uncertain, uh, then I would, I would really suffer. So I, I really started going right to that very feeling of, of just uncertainty, anxiety, doubt. And that I, I uh, was a diamond sutra, the diamond cutter of the doubts. I really studied that, and and uh, and, and practiced uh, that kind of reflection on doubt. So where I really understood, I didn't react anymore in a negative way to that uncertain feeling, to the the being feeling uncertain or unsure. So that was a new point. Now when I, I did that before I went to Wakapo. So so when I went to Wakapo, I had this great fear. I thought, if I go and stay with Ajahn Chah, he's probably got some kind of technique. And all these monks have techniques. And uh, and I'll probably have to do his technique. So I I remember trying to get out of God, I promised this month that I would go. And my Upachai Nongkai wanted me to go there. So I thought, if I go, he'd probably want me to do some kind of technique again. And I don't want, I don't need, I know what I'm doing. And so I went to my Upachai and I said, I don't want to go there. And he said, well, you, you know, just go and try it out. And it, if you, you know, if you can't stand it, you can come back here. So I went, so with this, with this time on, and, uh, and I, and then, uh, I don't try asked me what I was doing, and I told him about this, this, uh, penetration of doubt, and he said, oh, that's very good, you keep doing that. What <laughs> 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 <All> a <the> relief. <laughs> this teacher that can, you know, isn't going to dump a technique onto you. <laughs> the thing is, he did teach a technique. Yeah. It wasn't that he kept the thing. He had the a technique tech. teaching Bhutto and investigation of the body and walking on the road. And he gave talks and explained it all, but it wasn't enforced. Right, and he also encouraged developing Lupaya. Yes, that, that was the emphasis. Right. Was the technique was to bring balance in one's way of life. And I think when he, em- when he criticized techniques like the Mahasakara, of course, was bringing people out of balance and detaching them from the whole monastic life. And the only thing he taught was, well, comprehensive, the technique was part of the monastic life. Well. I think that's where he was, he's such a genius. You know, working at the life of Jesus. Like the sound of silence. Nobody teaches that. And uh, in, I think in Barry they say they, they just reject it. Like Joseph Goldstein and that just say don't you know, ignore it or uh, and that kind of thing is I think when you you, you went on a Mahasipada retreat and you mentioned it and they just said, What do they say? 
So, so you know, but this is where you you can, you know, makes you wonder what what they're really mindful of because this is uh, this is uh, something very obvious, uh, and and part of I mean everybody seems to to have it, and then to 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 not to just reject it. It's strange, very strange. I told Adam Shaw about it, and he, you see, he never even mentioned it, but when I mentioned it, he, he recognized mm-hmm. what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But this is where also, like, like with the, like with, with sometimes in Zen, isn't it? They, mm-hmm. You, you get so you get you 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 have too much uh, too you're doing too much with it or you're you've got too many fixed ideas and and this is like I can see it in the, in the, in monasticism too like with a lot of the forest traditions it's just monks uh, get too fixed about they get too attached to to ideas of purity or practice or or not practice or whatever, and then then, then that very attachment keeps them uh, from from let's say being free from attachment. Because you like with uh, with uh, some of the Tamayu Ajans in Thailand, uh, at least uh, one has always felt. Uh, you know, a tremendous respect for that tradition, a very admirable kind of tradition. But then, then you see that the result of a lot of monks from that tradition is that they're very attached to, to a very, you know, it has not has to be a certain way, it has to be this way, and, and and you can't do it that way or whatever. And where I'm more interested in just seeing attachment to that. Like like Mahasi Sardau technique, not not to reject it, but and I don't, you know, I I can appreciate it myself, but I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't want to put it into somebody's mind that it was wrong to do or that it was inferior, but it is it just trying to point to to it as uh, as a technique that one can use. Or not here, and and to recognize attachment with just like with Vinya and all that, we, one can be very attached to to Vinya, <coughs> and that can be very much supported in a in a in a Vinya community. You know, everybody's trying to keep the Vinya, and you keep it this way, and this is right. And and, that, and then you're not really aware of the attachment to it, but you can, you can always be. You no, know, what, what I was aware of attachment was when I started suffering from it, because the dukkha is the sign. You see, so 
So when, when I, I found for a while that Wapakon was very attached to Vinaya. And but then I would get I'd get very upset by monks who didn't do exactly what they should or or I'd get very negative towards monks in the town. I think they were they were bad monks. I'd make very have very sharp judgments. Uh, sometimes very, uh, sometimes very unkind judgments on other monks. And and then if somebody criticized, one time I thought I was really good. I was really the top Vinaya bhikkhu of the Western world. And I went to I went out to Got Sichar's island in uh, in Ajahn, one of Ajahn Chai's one of his disciples was out on this island and I stayed with him. And I thought I was really super duper Vinaya gung ho Vinaya monk. And then after I left, he, I heard a report that this monk said, told other people that I didn't keep the vineyard properly. I wasn't very good with the vineyard. And I was enraged. <laughs> <laughs> I was really angry. I ran it over and hit him. If it wasn't for my being such a good strict vineyard monk, I <laughs> but then one saw, you know, I saw that that what, what, because Ajahn Chah was he was he was really like the Vinaya and encouraged us here. But also the important issue was the dukkha. So then you, you know you could contemplate. Well, I really suffer from you know somebody says I'm not. Don't keep the vineyard well, or that I don't understand it, and, and I get really angry. You know, I'm suffering. So then I go to that. You know, to the you see the, your attachment to you build in a very strong identity of being someone who who keeps vineyard, and that when that is questioned or or looked down on, then you then you you suffer from it because of the attachment. So that, that this is this is this is always the gauge, the the, the sign for ignorance and attachment is, is the suffering, because of, we suffer because of uh, attachment. So vinaya can be uh, one can be attached to it, one can be not attached to it, which doesn't mean that you don't respect it and keep it, but it means that you're not identified with vinaya anymore. No longer, no longer ego trip or a, or a personal hang up or that kind of thing. So it's not that the other extreme is to think, well, I'm attached to the minion, so to prove that I'm not attached, I, I won't keep it anymore. Which is another kind of ego trip. You know, just to, to prove that I'm not attached, I'll just throw it away, is still coming from I'm somebody who's attached but shouldn't be. Rather than reflecting that monks, the vinaya, and, and is monastic is, is is the monastic form, and it's the way it is, and that that uh, that one it's just, it's it's in regards to action and speech, and it's and it's to be respected uh, and reflected from, but not to be attached to.
Like in Burma, you have, like, there was Mahati Bhaida was was very uh, instrumental in bringing the uh, Patana meditation out of the cupboard because the, the Burmese are incredibly devoted uh, on that level of devotion. They're there, there, there's totally unquestioning devotion among Burmese generally, and uh, and so that the temples and the the whole country, the whole kind of Buddhist milieu in in, uh, in Burma was well, had this uh, tremendous dana and devotion, and then Mahati Sayadaw, you see, and, and there was a lot of monks and and. Uh, Monks were very much uh, a part of the, of the whole society. So it wasn't, they were trying to establish monasticism or, or encourage devotion. These were already highly, highly developed there, but uh, trying to bring Vipassana into, into some kind of practical uh, acceptance, both for monks and for the lay people. Because before, I think, they, like a lot of times in Asian, in Theravadan countries, Vipassana was never taught to lay people at all. It was, it was, uh, and hardly even to monks. It was, it was more or less not, not, uh, you know, there were always a few, no doubt, but it had become really, uh, almost, it had been kind of pushed aside for the more devotional and aspects of the religion. And uh, Mahati Sarada was was a real pioneer in bringing the Pasana meditation to uh, to the forefront, to to where monks did it and, and lay people. So that's why he, if you go to the Mahati Sarada, I've never been there, but from what I hear, you know, it's chuck a block with with monks and lay people doing the, this technique. And one thing is that it, with, with uh, Burmese, you already have a tremendous devotion already. So they're coming from, a, from, you know, they need almost maybe this very kind of strong technique uh, because their nature is to, is, to, is to be very devoted. So sometimes, you know, the Mahasi Sado technique is, is almost colorless. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's just been so kind of, you know, te- technical, cookbook recipe type of uh, way of doing things that, that uh, for a Western person, you know, we, we consider that kind of scientific and, and, and our minds would tend to, to look at it in a very different way because we, we have a devotional side, usually. We don't have the devotional foundation or that, that kind of ingrained cultural uh, position that is just 
taken for granted in Burmese Buddhism. So then you get this this kind of you know like like when Westerners take to Zen, you know they'll say you know throw out the Buddha rupas and we were just emptiness and we don't want ceremonies and we don't want all that stuff. The Buddha just this very idealized uh, technique becomes become if, if taken on by Western mind then what what happens is you don't sometimes develop uh, a, a, a real sense of, of uh, triple gem of refuge and so forth so in, you know as I remember at Oakenhold they had when I think Ujjanika came there and uh, I mean Westerners just couldn't do that technique because he was really you know very kind of Spartan in his attitudes and wouldn't budge an inch to accommodate uh, I mean everybody and a lot of Burmese would go on that retreat and they would they could just out of devotion stick with it because they felt such respect for the monk and devotion to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and only the most very willful, strong-willed English people could could survive it. <laughs> it was just so kind of, you know, just like a straitjacket, almost like a, a cold surgery, just like cutting everything out and disengaging <laughs> and rising, cease, rising, falling, and, and continuously, and you don't, and you don't have any any devotion to come from, or any real faith, except we're just running on this willful, driving ability that we have. Where in, uh, and where I think that kind of hard-line Vipassana might be a real, a real balance for, for Burmese devotional tendencies. I think I must have had just quite a skillful teacher because you can, it was that technique, but then he wouldn't allow, if like, you're getting too concentrated, like, you can see this with the sound of silence, that's why he was, he said, oh, it's wrong or something, but I wasn't allowed to get, like, that really concentrated. I mean, when if I used to go into the cells, he immediately used to say, oh, it's a holiday. So it wasn't, it wasn't getting there and, Right, but it's still this. Well, that's this probably just a unique in him. But it? also, it's it's like the knowing. Well, that's it's it's just state, I <laughs> But I mean, but also, it was, uh, you know, the devotional side was never developed either, was it? He was quite soft like that. I remember hearing some of the Ujjanika tapes in Okapol and they tended to be more There was a language problem too. I mean, I was thinking the Ujjanika, he was quite like The language was so, when it went to English, it seemed so much becoming. We were driving in there. It held up this notion of cessation, not as something that was now, but as something that would happen. It would suddenly stop or crack. So you, you tremendous will 
was pushing me. Like when they told me that about the sound of silence, they said if you had any concentration, it would disappear. I, I took that sound of silence like a snapping gun and all that. I said, all right, that shit disappears. And I just put everything, every ounce of strength in my whole note from the sound of silence. I want to kill myself. <laughs> but it didn't disappear. <laughs> and uh, then I asked, well, who's, who's trying to do all this? And I told him about that. He said, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> he said, uh, the mind can't notice itself. You have to have a... And that was done. And then I said, I came back and noticed that. And I said, but when I do that, there's nobody here. It's just peaceful. Uh, so that's good, that's good. So I think there's a alignment problem there, uh, you know, difficult because it tends to come across really as, as your business somewhere, and, and, and it doesn't seem to put that into perspective as it comes through to the rest of No, I think I'm concerned that's the media of what you're saying, mm-hmm. like about the sound of silence, because the first time I used to experience that was that it was in the concentration you go into. <laughs> Like very peace, and then there'd be very the sound, and, bit, and then I'd sort of start concentrating on it, and then it pulled me off a bit because I was going, I was using it as an object of concentration. It's getting really bogged down in concentration. It wasn't the attitude, you know, I was just pulled by it. So there was the idea that uh, Nama Rupa. These points of knowing and points of objects were coming to you right there. Then there was the idea offered to you that peace was a coming to that nirvana was a coming to That never, in fact, that was sacred religious almost to think of that. So the Akalika Dhamma was very much the Sankata part of it. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't the opportunity for you to actually try to contemplate. Nirvana now, cessation now. But having the foundation in my own charge, reflecting, and it made it fine for me because having Mahasattva criticize you and you don't have to criticize you, that's how you use That brings us a lot to work with. But I noticed another monk who was himself who got so into that kind of becoming, he thought, oh, I'm really getting somewhere. I need to do 9, 10, 11 more retreats like this. So he left. And uh, which was very sad because he was, he really got hooked on that sense of getting, getting somewhere. So I I think without the balance of of the, this is how it is, such in the peace of the moment, for many Westerners, that's at least the You see, having an English teacher, it was very much emphasized as, as in Samayan emphasizes, like watching the end of things, yeah. just using that as a point, in a relaxed way, yeah. you know, very relaxed. But I did know people, you know, I mean, this is, as I say, I just go for my own personal experience. Yeah. I did know people who, um, even as one person with many victories here, you know, who was just so adamant about mastering it. But, I mean, I've known him for, it's 1971. 1971. And then he's still out to master it. You know. <laughs> and when he first went, in, when he first went, I don't know about it, you know, I'm talking about that. When he first went, when he first went into the cells, he was in the 1950s. The teacher used to take him out and make his practice sitting in an armchair with a c
It's within the diet, he did things sort of. I think it's a matter of attitude. But then when it's when the attitude's right, then it's it's daily practice anyway, because it's Because uh, that's just say to to like denoting in the like that that becomes.